men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about real Help Wanted ads. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, Seth and the Akimbo community. My name is Edafe. I'm a refugee living in New York City. I and a group of volunteers came together to create an organization to help displaced people tell their stories. If you would like to help, please visit www.refugeamerica.org slash take action. You could help to use your skills to help displaced people to tell their stories and make America a more welcoming place. Thank you. I don't know if the newspaper comes to your house any longer, but if it does, you may have noticed something happening over the last 20 or 25 years. The Sunday paper is a lot lighter. For many local newspapers, the Help Wanted section on Sunday paid most of the bills. One statistic I saw years ago is that the classified section of the newspaper accounted for 108% of the profit of a typical newspaper, meaning it was all of it, plus a little bit extra, to pay for other things they did that lost money. The Help Wanted section, of course, today is a shadow of its former self. What's amazing to me is that it exists at all. Here's an ad from the Sunday New York Times, August 2021. To accurately deliver it, I'll use a little sound effect to help you know that I'm reading something that's in all caps. Manager. Deloitte Consulting LLP seeks manager, customer and marketing, customer strategy and applied design in New York, New York, via various unanticipated Deloitte office locations and client sites nationally or manage digital and service UX, UI, user experience and user interface design, practicing a rigorous design process that includes ethnographic research, synthesis, insight generation, ideation, design, prototyping, and testing. Utilize these designs to drive innovative and transformative technology solutions that address their next generational needs. 80% travel required nationally telecommuting permitted. To apply, visit blah, blah, blah. Enter XBAL22FCOATAYNEY4592 in search jobs field. I'm sorry. I'm confused. I'm confused by a lot of things. I'm confused about the all caps. I'm confused about the all caps in a job searching for someone with UX and UI experience. I'm confused about the fact that someone with UX, UI experience is reading a printed ad in the New York Times in 2021. I'm confused that the New York Times can still make hundreds of thousands of dollars running ads that no one really is reading. I'm confused about so many things, but let's get back to Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton did not run the ad about men wanted for a hazardous journey. 
scholars and researchers have looked. They've looked really hard. Turns out a preacher from Englewood, New Jersey, named Carl Hopkins Elmore, sort of made it up in a book he wrote in 1944 called Quit, You Like Men. And in this book, he was exhorting young men to stand up and do brave things. And for whatever reason, he or someone who talked to him made up the story about Ernest Shackleton's advertisement. But what it highlights for me are two fascinating things about how the web, this enormous repository of information, this permission marketing machine, has completely bungled the idea of most help-wanted ads. I want to argue that most jobs are either jobs that most people can do and the person doing the hiring is looking for the cheapest available person who can do that job. And I would argue that is most of the jobs that you see advertised in the classifieds. It's a dance between the people who are busy looking for the cheapest possible person, so they want as many people as possible to see the ad, and the people who are looking for a job, who are applying to hundreds or thousands of jobs, hoping to get picked for a job they've only read six sentences about, many of which are in all caps. And then there's a different kind of job. And this is a job where there is an enormous upside to both the worker and the employer if the right person shows up to do the job. It's the kind of job where you'll pay a lot, but you'll get more than you paid for. It's the kind of job where there is a very high correlation between the skill, the attitude, the effort, and the experience of the person doing the job and the output the job brings with it. So I hope we can imagine that if you needed knee surgery and you believe that all knee surgeons are not the same, it would be worth paying extra for the best knee surgeon. Of course, if all surgeons are the same, then you should just take the close one, the cheap one, and the convenient one. So if we look at books like The E-Myth Revisited, if we look at giant industrial entities, they have worked overtime to make it so that the French fries at any given McDonald's are not dependent on the skill or passion of the person who's making the French fries. There's a machine that's making sure that person has almost no choices, that the person who is working the front desk is monitored by a stopwatch, is watched by a manager, that the entire purpose of the manager is to make sure that the people fit inside the box that has been described. And if you're going to build an institution like this, there is an enormous pressure on you to have no jobs that require somebody to do something that's special. That the nature of industrial output, 150 years into it, is you don't know the name of the person who sewed your Louis Vuitton bag. You don't know the name of the person who organized the tray of tools just before your surgeon started giving you knee surgery. That it is not specific to a person. So, in my experience, most help-wanted ads that run in the newspaper are designed to reach the largest possible number of people to attract the largest number of resumes. 
so that the hiring people can set a price that the market will bear and hire enough people that they have power in the organization, that the org chart is filled with square boxes because if everyone's in a square box, you can move people in and out. This is really different than, for example, a symphony orchestra bending over backwards to keep a first violinist or a conductor happy because they've decided that replacing that particular set of attitudes and skills and talents is really difficult. So it's in the industrialist interest to make jobs as replaceable, as fungible as possible. And workers have played along because they don't want many times to be on the hook. They like the idea, easy in, easy out. And so the help wanted ads work in that direction as well. And so first Craigslist and then Monster and then one service after another came along to give people who are advertising jobs an easy way to reach as many people as possible. It gave people who are looking for a job an easy way to search for the jobs that they want, geographically or now in the pandemic, when you can work from home, internationally. And so we have this marketplace, but it's not a marketplace like the marketplace for vinegar or for oranges or for tofu, because it's also our livelihood. It's also reflecting who we are when we look in the mirror. It's also the heart of how most of us spend our day. And the internet has done a really terrible job of figuring out how to connect the right people to the jobs that need the right people. So that Ernest Shackleton ad, the one that never really ran, Ernest Shackleton had earned enough of a reputation that he was able to find people to go on that difficult journey. But many organizations have a problem. They haven't earned the trust, nor do they have the platform to find the people who are looking for them. There is a marketplace filled with disconnect. People who are looking for a job where the folks who are trying to hire are willing to pay extra for someone special have trouble proving that they're someone special. And the ones who are hiring have trouble earning the trust to demonstrate that they are trustworthy. Which brings us to the Joel test. Joel Spolsky, multiple successful entrepreneur. You may know him from Stack Overflow. You may know him from his book, Joel on Software. You may know him from Fog Creek Software and other projects he's launched. How did Joel get started in this whole idea of Help Wanted? Well, his blog, Joel on Software, was only for the very best, most thoughtful software engineers and project managers. People who didn't care didn't read it. People who did read it religiously. And Joel did an experiment. And the experiment was running help wanted ads, but only aimed at this specific subset of experts. And if you wanted to run an ad, you had to score your company. There was a Joel test, a 10-question quiz you had to answer about what was it like to work there. Simple example. Do programmers get their own office or do they work in a cubicle? Because Joel and many other programmers have articulated that programmers work better when they can work unmolested in an office. Well, your score was a way of demonstrating that in this setting, 
the people you were seeking to hire had more status, had more power than the person who was doing the hiring. And if you weren't willing to change the kind of company you were running, you probably weren't going to get to avail yourself of this kind of programmer. So what's happening now is the market is bifurcating. On one hand, thanks to freelance marketplaces, places like Fiverr or Upwork, we've got, who wants to bid on this? Who will do this job for $12? We've got a race to the bottom where you define what good enough is, and there's plenty of good enough to go around. And on the other hand, there are small, tiny pockets, like Tina's Creative Guild, where people are assembling folks who actually stand for something and demanding the folks who are looking to hire skill. I hesitate to use the word talent because I think talent is a little bit of a myth, but skill, skill can be earned. People with skill assemble and look for those sorts of jobs, but we've done a terrible job of it. And the New York Times is a particularly egregious example. But the question is, where are the ratings? Where are the ratings of the employees so that when I show up to look for a special job, it's really easy to tell that I'm one of the special ones? And where are the ratings of the employers so that the special people who are in a circle can find the next place they want to sign up and do their work? I'm not sure, but I think that the word freelancer comes from the Middle Ages. Some knights with their lances were assigned for life to a given warlord or king. But a freelancer, or as my grandmother used to say, a freelancer, would work maybe for the highest bidder, maybe for someone they believed in. And as there is more fluidity in where we seek to work, because we don't have to leave town to switch jobs, because people who are in demand will be more likely to switch to a better project, it becomes incumbent on the system that we're building, the exchange of information back and forth, that employers with great jobs find employees who are ready to lean in as linchpins to do work that matters for people who care. And looking at this marketplace, even more than the ridiculous marketplaces that are things like Tinder, I'm just seeing a huge disconnect because most of them have made it really easy to search for a couple words to find an average job for average people, put your name in the pile, a computer's going to look through your resume, and maybe you'll get picked. But in general, we haven't made it more transparent or more powerful. Little known fact about LinkedIn, most of their revenue comes from tech recruiters who are paying LinkedIn for access to more information about the kind of people they want to hire. What happens when we build very specific small circles of people and small circles of employers so that we can make a match that matters. Last little aside, another anecdote that I was told to be true, but I can't promise you. Back in the first boom of hiring programmers in the 90s, Intel had a real shortage of programmers. And so what they did was they went to a bunch of their senior people and they gave them a stack of blue cards. And they said, if at any conference or at any event, you meet our kind of person, that plus 10 programmer, hand him one of these blue cards. And what the blue card says is, 
Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one day and soon, you're going to need a job and we've got one for you. No interviews, no fooling around. Just show up, show us the blue card, and you're hired. That's not the answer to the problem in front of us as the world continues to shift, but it does give us a hint, a hint about what kind of jobs are being offered and what kind of people are looking for them. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with answers to questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Four questions this week, all about time. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Steve in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Your recent podcast about time slipping and what we do with the convenience that our modern world provides to us just... I listened to it four times and every time I noticed something new and um, I, I feel very lucky to have not had much financial trouble in the pandemic. And so I had in that surplus of time. I started playing in a band again. I started writing again. Um, I started coaching young folks early in their careers on how to not make some of the mistakes that I've made pro bono just because I love doing it. And I love seeing them be successful. Um, so I'd like to think that I've probably not made the most of them, but did a good, good, good college try at making the most of it. And I wonder, uh, how to help the people that we care about see this opportunity and see this time and, and look at how they're spending it and what is, what is the outcome? I'd just love to hear you expand on that. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for getting us started, Steve. This is really profound. And one of the things that we have done for the last 50 years, two of the things we've done actually, is created a world built around convenience and a world that is allergic to boredom. That people have figured out that they can make money, that they can get traction by offering people those two things. This is more convenient, we say, 
And so other people give up their privacy, their money, their time. And we have created a culture, particularly for kids, but then all the way into adulthood, where boredom is seen as a bad thing. But boredom is simply a symptom that we might be aware of time, that we can be aware of time ticking by when we are truly excited and on the edge of our seat, but we are fully aware of time clicking by when we are bored. And so one of the things that I could encourage you to do is to find activities that involve human beings sitting with each other, simply breathing, simply being. And as an organization, it may make sense for you to find people on your team and volunteer. Volunteer at hospice. Volunteer with the homeless. Volunteer with people who have a different interaction with time than you and your team are used to. Because time might be the same for everyone. It doesn't matter whether your watch is working or not. Time marches on. But time is experienced differently by everyone. If you've ever been up in the middle of the night, 2 a.m. with, I don't know, a foot that itches, time seems to go endlessly slowly. But when you're in one of those rare moments of flow with a dear friend, time just whistles right by. And being aware of time, not hiding from it, that's a great place to begin. Hey, Seth. This is Ryan from Philadelphia. I have a question about a linchpin's exit strategy from a company. I've spent the last four years dedicating myself to a great company, becoming a linchpin and almost indispensable. I always thought that I'd leave the company years down the road after it had become quote-unquote successful. Now, my heart is pulling me in a different direction towards an opportunity I can't ignore. The decision has already been made. What I hope for is a slow untangling process where much of what I've developed stays in place as people fill in the duties where needed. What I fear is that it will become a gaping hole once I leave. Any advice on Lynchpin's exit strategy would be much appreciated. Thanks again for all you do. I love your books and look forward to this podcast every week. Thank you, Ryan. It sounds like you have made a big impact on this organization. And one of the challenges of time when it comes to our career is this. If you're going to start something, you're going to end something. The days that you took a job when you were 20 and stayed there until you were 65 are long gone. And so part of what it means to open a door is to acknowledge that one day we will close the door. Industrialists, people who are trying to build systems that don't depend on amazing individuals putting in extra effort, don't like the idea of a linchpin. They would rather everyone be instantly replaceable. If your local Starbucks loses a barista, within a week, just about everyone in the institution has recovered. They built it that way on purpose. And you are generous and aware enough to say, wait, there's going to be a disconnect when I leave here. But I think it's also essential to understand that the organization was there before you got there and it's going to be there after you leave. And the best that you can do is to create that manual, that playbook, that training that lets other people take over, and then you have to say goodbye because time marches on. Hey, Seth. This is Hunter from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, my question is around bringing change. Uh, you speak on your podcast a lot about 
changing the culture, bringing change um, in many contexts. But in this one, I'm asking more about when you're trying to bring change to a team uh, or the workplace. Um, with every change, there's going to be some trade-offs. The chances that you can make a change that has no downsides at all is pretty rare. And there's always going to be edge cases uh, where it doesn't work um, or the new method is not ideal. Uh, so I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about how do you implement change and get people to buy in and enroll in the change that you want to see, um, even when there are some downsides to it. Thank you for this, Hunter. One of the things that people mistake about leadership is this. Everyone has to like it. Everyone has to like change. It has to be unanimous that whatever we're going to do is going to make things better. And in those rare instances where it's true, right, it's suddenly really, really cold out and you want to shut the window. Well, just about everyone's going to come out ahead from that one. No one's going to push back. But most of the time, if we're doing something that might not work, if we're doing something that's important, some people are in favor of the status quo. Back when I was running Yoyodyne, one of the first internet companies, I had 50 people in one giant room. And one of the things I instituted was that every 90 days, everybody had to move where they sat. Now, I said they did it so that no one would have to sit next to me for too long. But the real reason I did it is simple. At work, moving where you sit, moving who is around you is somewhat traumatic. And if people got used to the idea that we were a place of change, well, then the other changes we were implementing to our business model, to our approach, to our staffing, didn't seem as dramatic. So one of the things we need to do when we live in crazy changing times is to highlight the fact that change isn't fatal, to highlight the fact that change is inevitable, and therefore not to ask the question, should we change something, but instead to ask the question A or B. Because with A or B, the status quo is not one of the options. There will be a post on my blog tomorrow. I already decided that. I decided it a really long time ago. So now my only decision is which one should it be? And creating a culture where that's the mindset, where the status quo is not an option, that might be work worth doing. Hi, Seth. This is Kathleen from Tucson, Arizona. And if I may, I would like to ask you a personal question. I notice how thoughtful and insightful all of your answers are to the questions that people ask you. And I'm wondering how much time you put into thinking about those answers before you respond. Does it take a fair amount of time to think them through? Or have you thought about these issues for so long that it's pretty quick and easy for you to come up with responses? Thank you so much. And I love to listen to your show every week. Thank you for this, Kathleen. And I appreciate the fact that my answers seem to resonate with you. The thing is, that I think what people are asking me for is not a year's worth of research and a certain guaranteed correct answer. I think most of the time when people are engaging with one another, at least when we're talking to someone who isn't a car mechanic or an oncologist, I think what we're asking for is our truth in that moment based on what we see, based on our understanding. And I am trying to answer these questions as if you were asking them to me as we were walking down the street. I don't edit them very much. I'm simply here trying to imagine 
what the person who is asking me a question is actually seeking. And if I can shed some light, I do. Thanks to everyone for listening. And again, if you've got a question, visit akimbo.link and share it with us. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.